Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today we are speaking with Writers of the Future winner from Volume 31 with his short story, Unrefined, Martin Shoemaker. Hey, Martin, good to talk to you. Hey, John, it's good to hear from you again. So we met back in, th- in Volume 31, and that's now been six years almost. And yep. you've been out, I think, a couple times for Rise of Future events. Um, it was, it's been an almost year so far. Volume 36 is still waiting to happen, which hopefully everything's under control and we can do a combined 36-37 event in uh, April of next year. But um, you know, getting back to how you got started with science fiction, I know that there's one thing that I've just... I've always asked, I've talked about it before, but I, I just find it's fascinating. Your email is, um, I think it's UMLGuy? TheUMLGuy.com, yeah. Yeah, so how'd that come about? Well, I, I've loved science fiction and writing all my life, but when I was in high school, I was a little ahead of my algebra class, and my algebra teacher in ninth grade wanted to give me something to do to keep me busy, and he said, hey, this thing over here, this is a computer, and this is a program, and you should write one of these. Now, this is, this is like 1979 or so, so it was a whole different computing world from what we know today. Um, so it was all new. Kids these days, of course, it's like, yeah, a computer. Like, I've had them my whole life. Now, this, this is something new for me, and it immediately grabbed my attention. And, and I found I was pretty good at writing programs and there's plenty of work and demand for writing programs. So I sort of got sidetracked that that became my creative outlet for most of my adult life. I still was doing the writing, but the thing that was making the money was the pro- programming. And in software development, there is a uh, thing called UML, Unified Modeling Language. It's essentially a blueprint language for designing the software. And I taught UML for 10 years under the UML Guy brand. Wow. And so that sort of became my online presence up, right up until the point where I started becoming more serious about my writing again. But that still was my, my background, what I was known for at the time. Now I would say there's probably 100 to more than 100 times as many people know me as a writer than ever knew me as a programmer. But still, the the programming is is what um, keeps the roof over your head. It is, and it also kind of feeds into the writing too. David Barlin likes to talk about three kinds of transport to to help you sort of get a reader into a story. He talks about uh, emotional transport, which is you make the reader feel what the characters are feeling, and sensory transport is you make them see and hear and smell what the characters are smelling. And then he talks about intellectual transport, which is you make the world believable and consistent. And I think my, my history of software development for 30 years has made me a natural at that intellectual transport side that I'm used to building great giant things in my head and turning them into something concrete that a person can see. So in some ways, even the programming was a training for the writing. 
Okay, well, that makes sense. And that, that keeps you, you would, would you call yourself hard science fiction author or? I would say 80% or so of what I do is hard science fiction. I, I go where the idea leads me. So if a fantasy idea comes along, I go with it. But my, my natural place is the hard science fiction. I actually get more specific than that. I, I think of it as Neo-Apollo. It's stories that have the same sort of uh, realism and, and immediacy of the Apollo program just in the next era of, of the exploration space. I mean, that's what my, my winning story, Unrefined, was, was what I think of as a Neo-Apollo story because it was very tied into humanity working and, and living and struggling and dying out in the near future, near space. Right. No, indeed it was, and it's, um, we're getting closer to that, what you wrote about in Unrefined. Yeah. We're getting there. So I got that your, your ninth grade teacher said, okay, write a program, meaning a computer program. So when did writing science fiction actually enter the picture for you? Uh, it's entered multiple times through the years. Uh, I literally, some of the earliest things I can remember were, were making up stories and such. Um, before I even could read and write, I was making up stories about imaginary characters. And when I was in, this would have been probably kindergarten, maybe first grade, I forget which, my oldest brother went to college and he got a gift of a typewriter to do his college papers on. And I was utterly fascinated that this was something you could make real stories on. You, you, it wasn't like by hand. This was, you would see actual letters like they show up in books. And so I had to learn how to use that typewriter so I could type up my own stories. So I have literally been writing science fiction stories since five or six years old, but I didn't get serious about it as a career, as, as an actual craft until um, I can actually put a date to this. Uh, July 4th of 2010 was when I started sending out stories and being serious about it this time and, and not just giving up because, oh, they didn't buy my brilliant story, so I guess I'm going to go write some more software. Wow. And then how did you find out about Writers of the Future? Um, the hard way. <laughs> I, I really honestly, the hard way. I had heard little bits about it here and there. I've been reading science fiction since forever, so I was around when Volume 1 came out, and I read some reviews of it and so on, so I sort of knew there was this anthology out there, but I didn't understand what it was about at all. And then later on, as I was starting to get more serious about my writing and trying to now really go out and start submitting places, I was reading particularly... Uh, Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell talking about the contest and Dean Wesley Smith and Chris and Catherine Rush talking about the contest. And so I finally got it through my head that, you know, this is a contest. Cause I, I sometimes <laughs> pick up the volumes through the years and say, who, who, who decided these people were the writers of the future? I've never heard of any of them. And I didn't get the point. And I finally started to get the point, And I was also at a point in my, career where I was just about ready to give up again, that I decided I wasn't selling, I wasn't getting anywhere, it was time to go back to writing code. And so my, my deadline I set for myself was January 1st, I give up and go back to writing code. Well, along came a story back from Asimov on 
December 31st that they had rejected it. And it's like, December 31st isn't January 1st. I have to send this out one more time. And so I went on to Duotrope to look for listings, and there was the contest. And I said, well, it has a quarterly contest entry date, which is the 31st, which is today, and this is the day I have to send this out. And I, I love synchronicity. It's like, this has to go out today because it's the last day for this quarter, and it's the last day before I give up on writing. And I sent it out and forgot about it, and I started learning Windows Phone game programming on January 1st. And I didn't really still understand what the contest was about until about three months later, I get a call from Joni telling me that my story is a finalist. And I, at that point, I'd literally forgotten I sent it out. I said, oh, well, that's pretty good. I appreciate that. And she said, yeah, it's going to take probably a month for the judges to decide. So don't, don't be telling anybody yet, but, but your story is a finalist. And I'm like, huh, I need to find out what this is all about. (laughs) She's making this sound pretty big. And a month later, she calls back and says, well, sorry, you didn't win. Yours wasn't one of the three, but, but Jerry Purnell loved your story and thought it ought to win. And my jaw hits the ground (laughs) because Jerry and Larry have been such an influence through on me both in the programming side and the, the writing side for so long to have Jerry Purnell say he thought my story should have won made me realize that I need to, first of all, learn a whole lot more about this contest. And second of all, maybe I shouldn't be giving up yet. Right. And so from there, I went and did the research and found Brad Torgerson's article on what winning the contest did for him. And, and I found the forum and I started participating in, I was like, Oh, this has been out there my whole life, and I've been ignoring it because I was too stupid to do the research. Wow. So how many times did you enter the contest? I entered from there every quarter until I won. I had every quarter but one was at least an honorable mention. And I had two finalists before the one that finally won. So that would be, I want to say it was 13 quarters. It might have been 14 quarters, which I was pretty pleased with. I happen to, of course, have met people who have been trying a lot harder for a lot longer than this. Uh, Wolf Moon, uh, Scott Parkins, and, of course, um, Preston, Carrie English. and um, Preston Dennett as well. It was 47 times, I think. And uh, Dr. Phil. Oh, man, where's my name on Dr. Phil? I have his name in my head, but I've lost it now. Um, but he is actually, well, he's passed away now, but, but he was a writer and a physics teacher from right here in West Michigan. And they say he basically had every possible place you can get in this contest short of winning. So there are lots of people who had a lot more time and effort on this than I did and had a lot longer string of successes than I did, but I'm not ashamed of my string of successes. Not in the least. Heck, man. Especially, you know, with what you've gone on to do, you know, subsequent to that. So after you won and you then um, came out for the week-long workshop, so what was that like? Um, It was just absolutely not even drinking from the fire hose. It was drowning from the fire hose. (laughs) So much going on. And 
all these judges there to share their information and all this staff there trying to help us make sure we understand both what we've accomplished and what the contest means going forward to a point where it kind of overwhelmed me and I couldn't really even see it, how big it was at the time. Right. It's when you had me and Carrie and Steve back out the next year that I finally realized how big it was because until then, I sort of felt like, man, this is great. They've really done good things. They're promoting this, and I'm very happy, and I met all these great writers and all these great judges, but I hadn't taken seriously all the statements you made about how, and we now support your career. We are now in, in your cheering section. We now care about your success. Until I came out the next year, and all these judges knew what I'd been writing, and all these people, all, all the people in the staff, everybody knew what my career had been doing in the 12 months since the workshop. And I realized, oh, you are all serious about this. You really do care about these winners and care about making their career go and care about helping them to make connections with all these judges and, and all these fans and readers too. Yeah, it's, it's true. And it's, um, it's good that you got that because like you observed, I said it, but until you actually observe it and experience it, it it's, it's so unreal because it doesn't happen anywhere else like that. And it's so common in industry to hear people say polite noises that don't have follow-through. Right. And the contest has follow-through. Yeah, that's what, when the, the very first incarnation, I just sent out a press release this week on the 80th anniversary of the Golden Pen Award, which... Elrond Hubbard, when he created the contest in 1983 for Writers of the Future, had an earlier incarnation called the Golden Pen Award when he was on, a, on an expedition uh, flying the flag for the uh, Explorers Club in Ketchikan, Alaska. Uh, he had some uh, ship problems. He had to do some rebuilding of, of the engine. So he was there for, I think, a month or two, and he created this Golden Pen Award for... People don't realize Ketchikan is probably in addition to being the wettest city in the United States, is renowned as an art city. And so it was full of writers and aspiring writers, you know, amongst all the, the fishermen. And so he had this contest, and he, his whole idea was to give his, the winner his, com, his uh, communication lines, his publishing lines in New York to help them get their career started. So it's, it's, a, it's a habit that he had that, you know, we just carried forward, and it was part of what he was creating when he started this contest was to provide for the future of science fiction and fantasy because it is an important genre. Yeah. So, and, and that was, was a message that was presented, but I didn't realize it until I saw it in action. Yeah. So in the workshop itself, so any particular points that stand out to you as one of the, some of the best takeaways, it doesn't have to be one, but any of the points that stand out as highlights? The, Individual sessions from the, from the judges when they come towards the end of the week and each put, give an hour or so of their time were, were marvelous more than just for the messages themselves, but for conveying this idea that there are multiple ways to do things in this field because each of them were giving their own impressions, their own ways of doing things, and you start to see, but that's not the one true path. There right. are paths. Everybody's got their paths. And so if I'm doing something that's different from what somebody else is telling me, that doesn't make it wrong. It means 
if this is working for me, keep doing it. If it's not working for me, try changing it up. So I think that was as valuable as any one lesson. Seeing that the different judges had different ways was incredible. Yeah, you've got, you know, Tim Powers will take a year to do a novel, and Kevin Anderson will do five, six, seven books in a year. To say one's better than the other is, you can't say that. It's just it's a different format, different style, and different methodology. Each is totally successful based upon their own career curves of as being successful, amazingly successful authors. And, and getting to know all of these judges, it, it's the classic thing of, of mystique gets broken down when you get to know the people as people. And part of that mystique breaking down is you start realizing, yes, these people are talented. Yes, they have experience. But they also have most of the same concerns that I have. But what they've got different is 10, 20, 30 years of experience of dealing with it. But, but I start seeing that my concerns are normal. And if it didn't stop them, they don't have to stop me. That's a very good point. Were there any of the essays, I'm just curious, any of the essays written by uh, Elwin Hubbard that were, that you found of value? Obviously, he's not, you know, able to participate directly, but he did, you know, in addition to endowing the contest, we have several of his essays that he provided that was originally what Al just pulled and was using when he taught the first uh, workshops. I wish I could remember the name of it because this sort of stuff slips my brain. But there was an essay you had us read, which was essentially on the nature of art itself. Yeah, art and, more about. That's one of the most famous. It's interesting to say that because that's on. We have the writers' workshop we, we launched recently, with which now has over thirty-five hundred people on it. That comes up as a favorite essay. It's interesting you say that. Art more about. It, it really. It, it's a, an essay that the lessons come back and echo over time that there's a lot of deep thought in that about what the purpose of and 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 the both the social and the personal purpose of art are and at the time i read it again it was in this sort of okay i'm getting the fire hose poured into me and this is one more pile of stuff being poured in and yeah this is interesting is it's well written and everything but the meaning hit later and that's, that's interesting you say that because it, it does. It's one of those things that people, that's, you mentioned Wolf Moon. That's his favorite essay, and it, it hit him later as well. You just, just almost exactly what you just said there. Mm-hmm. So on your life then as an author, what's happened since then as an author? I know you've got, several, how many novels do you have? Like, I've got three novels out now, if you count the one that is coming out in October, which I think of as done because the galleys are, are the, the arcs are on my shelf, but I guess for the rest of the world, it's not out till October. Um, I've had a whole bunch of short fiction out. I've lost track of how many pieces I've had out now. Some of them have been reprinted. I know that a year or so back, my Amazon page listed 50 different titles that I had stories in. I've got to believe that is well over 60 now and, and adding to that all the time. A lot of this has come because of connections made in the contest, helping me to grow and get confidence in things, having the judges remind me that, Hey, we believe you can do this. So you should believe you can do this too. That I just have I, I know writers are supposed to have imposter syndrome, 
And I just, honestly, I don't have it. I'm not that I'm saying that I'm that good, that I'm just do all of this and that everything's going to happen for me. But it's just a matter of, I don't have doubts of can I do it or not. I might have doubts of a particular story. Is this story any good? But one of the things that they taught, or at least some of the judges taught, was that you just go on and do another story then. Mike Resnick told me one time, they can't all be your best work. And Dean Wesley Smith and Chris and, and Kevin J. Anderson and others, they all encourage this attitude of, okay, it's done, write the next one. It's done, write the next one. Move on, write the next one. So I stop having doubts about myself because if one story doesn't go anywhere, then I just move on to the next one. Right. In fact, I don't wait to find out if it's going anywhere. I move on to the next one. That's smart. That's good. I remember all the advanced hype and promotions when you came out based on your short story, Today I Am Paul. Was it last year that you, that you released Today I Am Carrie? That was March of last year. Yes, it's been over, well over a year. So that was, I mean, I was really impressed with the advanced hype and publicity of that, and it's, and it's definitely a great story. I just, I read the first part of it, getting ready for this interview with you, and it's, it's just a fascinating concept that you came up with. So how did that evolve? I, I owe a lot of that to Mike Resnick, and he told me if I ever wrote a story that good again and didn't sell him the, that story, <laughs> uh, they'd never find the body. Um, Mike had challenged me to write shorter because I tend to write long, and I was trying to come up with an idea that would would be a shorter story, and I was in the shower one morning, and bouncing ideas back and forth. And I started having this idea about an Alzheimer's patient and an Android. And the line came to me today. I am Paul. And when it came to me, it was going to be the, the opening line of the story. It ended up actually being about the third paragraph, I think. Yeah. Um, but in that one line, bingo, the whole story just hit me in the head and it was okay. Finish the shower, clean up, get ready, get to work, go to work get in the Jeep, start driving, and start dictating. And I've got about a 50-minute trip to work, and I dictated for 50 minutes that time, and I dictated 5,000 words. And when I reached the office, I turned off the Jeep, and I had the story done. Wow. And it just all hit just in this, this absolute white-hot flash of of inspiration of the two characters of the Android and the Alzheimer's patient. And just, just the words just fell out of my mouth. Right. And when I got done, I took it home that night and transcribed it all and sent it off to three of my first readers. Plus my mother who was my, my mother passed away about a year ago, but she was one of my first readers and the first readers all loved it except uh, two of the first readers, uh, uh, Carrie English from Volume 31 and Tina Smith from 29, I think. Mm -hmm. They do, do a lot of my first reading. They looked at it and said, your last two paragraphs are weak. And I said, okay, let me read those. And I said, oh, those two paragraphs are weak. I need to do this instead because that would be perfect. And I erased those two and I wrote three in place and sent it off and... Immediately, Neil Clark at Clark's World said, 
I want this story, and I'm going to rearrange the August issue so that this can be the first story in that issue, so sign this paperwork quickly so that I can get it in in time. <laughs> wow. And it just took off from there. Definitely took off. And then how, so then how did it transition from being the short story of Today I Am Paul to Today I Am Carrie? Well, the short story got a Nebula nomination. It got the Washington Science Fiction Association Small Press Award. It got four years best collections. It got translated into eight languages. It, it, the short story made a splash. And one of the things you learn when you make a splash is all of a sudden finding agents is a lot easier because now they're aware of who you are. Mm -hmm. And I discussed with a couple of different agents of who, who had contacted me and some I had contacted them looking for a good fit. And I found an agent who was the agent actually for Andy Ware of the Martian. Right. And he was really interested in my work and he was saying, you know, you've got these great stories that are sort of like the Martian in their concept and you love those things, the whole Neo Apollo thing. And then you've got this story that, that has been read by 50,000 people the world over. I'm not telling you what to write, but <laughs> if you wanted the one that's going to grab some attention and you said you were going to turn it into a novel anyway, maybe this should be your debut novel because he's a strong believer in trying to make as much of a splash as you can with your debut novel. Right. And I'd always felt like there was more to these characters the way the story ended anyway. And in fact, I had written a sequel story because uh, Don Ray Ammon, of course, uh, Don Ray and Jenna are at just about every Writers of the Future workshop, show up for the gala and everything. Mm -hmm. They're big fans of the writing community and of new writers and, and old writers. They really like to promote the writing world. I would say that they are as much believers in it as anyone at, at Galaxy Press and Author Services. They're all on this level of we want to see creators take off. Right. And they had approached me about doing a story for a Christmas charity anthology. And what came out from me for that was a second story of the Android and the family of the Alzheimer's patient. So I sort of had already the, the beginnings of the novel coming out from there. And that piece ended with the Android getting a name and, and, and becoming a part of the family, not just a sort of appliance. Right. So I had all the pieces, and from there it was just a matter of, what's this story going to be about? And it needed to be about the concept of identity and memory and how they're tied together and how the android needs to have an identity within the family. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly that it became about the little girl in the first story because it became largely the story of her life growing up with the android as her best friend. Right. And so it's the android's point of view, but in a lot of ways it's her story as much as the android's. And that's what you wrote then for Don Ray, and then, that's, and then it expanded there into the novel Today I Am Carrie. Yep. Okay. And I, I had sort of a... I had a conundrum, uh -huh. and in fact, um, I recently heard 
Orson Scott Card talking about turning short stories into novels, and he talked about the same conundrum, and he gave me exactly gave exactly the opposite advice from what I followed. The conundrum was that I early on read um, Flowers for Algernon, mm-hmm. the, the novelette, mm-hmm. and it's, it's one of the absolute classics in the field. Right. And then later on, I read the novel, and I thought it was bloated because. You you can't move the end point of that story. The end point is where the end point yeah, has. Yeah, it's where it's done. And you really can't move the starting point either. So the only way you can make it a novel length work is to stick stuff in the middle. And I said, you know, if I just told the story about Mildred and the android, I can't move the end point of that story. And I could move the start point some, but it starts really in such a good place for introducing things. I can't move the start point. And and no offense to, to Keyes, but I think his novel was bloated. It was not as good as his original work, so I didn't want to do that same thing. So I did what Orson said, or what Scott said, basically don't do. He said what you need to do is move your start, tell everything leading up to your story, and end with your original story. I did exactly the opposite. That I started with my original story and then told what comes after. And he said, that will be a miserable failure and it won't work. And I'm like, well, I did it already and people are buying it and people are telling me they liked it. So maybe another time I'd have done what Scott said, but this time I did what made sense to me. Yeah, but it makes sense also that if you have a fixed start and end point, to make it bigger, you're going to have to bloat it. But if you can move either the start or the end, then you've got yourself a novel from a short story. Mm-hmm. Or a whole new time place where you just take the concept from a short story. Now that sets up your concept or even a, a memory of the novel that then takes off and goes in a whole different uh, direction. But anyway. And, and that's likely to happen with Unrefined. That I, I, You've read that. You know that it sort of ends with, yes, we've survived. But yeah. we haven't solved the bigger problem. Correct. Like, who sabotaged us and how who they did Who sabotaged it. Right. And I have thoughts of that, and I have grand thoughts of that, that it may become a novel at some point, but clearly that has to be the start of the novel. That cannot be the ending point of the novel. Yeah, but it sets it up. Now you've got a novel. You can Now you can actually, it becomes a, a massive science fiction whodunit. Mm-hmm. Which would be a great story. So we've gone over like what's happened since since uh, winning the, the contest. Now, you you did mention uh, Mike Resnick, who recently passed away, and you've since been an, announced as the assistant editor for Galaxy's Edge magazine. So how did this evolve? Well, it starts with Mike Resnick. Um, as you know, I can be long-winded, so my apologies. But <laughs> it starts with Mike Resnick and the founding of Galaxy's Edge. Uh-huh. And he's told this story oftentimes, and he told it to to workshops, to to the winners at the workshop. So I think it's a story I can safely retell how when Shahid Mahmood came to him with this idea for a reprint magazine that would reprint classic stories and, and keep them in circulation and share them with new audiences, Mike said, I will agree on two conditions. Condition one is you cut my salary... And people look at him funny then. He says, and you take the money you save by cutting my salary and give it to me so I can pay new writers to write new stories in between the reprint so that these new writers can appear 
next to Bob Silverberg or Larry Niven or Nancy Kress or any of these, that they can have their story showing up right next to them in a magazine that's drawing in eyes because of the classics from the big names, it's introducing these new writers to this as well. And, and he loved to do this, and he loved particularly to have writers, the future winners, be among the new writers he was bringing in. Yeah. Because Mike, I mean, I think I first heard, I, I need to go back and dig it out, I think I first heard the term pay it forward in a Heinlein essay where he was talking about L. Ron Hubbard. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's an ethos that has been very dominant in the science fiction community, not universal, but there's a long history of writers helping the next generation because you can't help the prior generation who helped you. They're so far ahead in their career that they don't need your help. They need you to carry it to the next level. They need you to pay it forward. This is, of course, the whole rationale of the Writers of the Future contest. Right. That we're trying to help the next generation learn from the prior generations and build on and carry the chain forward. And as you'll recall, that was, of course, the whole theme of my acceptance speech. That's right. Was how that part of my learning from the contest is it's my turn. I need to be paying it forward, too. I don't have to wait. I can do it now. Right. You don't pay it back. You pay it forward. And so when we lost Mike, and then when Leslie, the editor, asked me, would you like to be the assistant editor? I could use some help. I Honestly, I didn't have any choice. I owed it to Mike. I owed it to L. Ron Hubbard. I owed it to Robert Heinlein. I owed it to every author who has ever shared information with me to help my career to do my little bit to keep Mike's Pay It Forward project on track. Right. I just, I had no choice in the matter. I had to do this. And, and Leslie's like, I'm going to need you to pitch in and help and, and do this. I'm going to be doing the bulk of the work, of course, but I'm going to have things I need from you. Those who don't know Leslie well may not be aware that she was, because uh, Mike was big on collaborations, which is, again, part of his pay it forward. Mm-hmm. Collaborate with a new author who might have areas of expertise that could help him out, and he's helping them to learn writing and so on. And, and he just did this all the time. Sadly, I never got a chance to collaborate with him because the one time he asked, it was a topic I knew nothing about, and I had to be honest. But among these collaborators, Leslie was probably his most frequent collaborator of all. Right. And she was his assistant editor for at least the last three years of the magazine, maybe longer. And so she was very, very much in tune with his spirit of how things should run. I like to say that the magazine has basically two themes, works you're proud of and stories with heart. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you read Leslie's fiction and you read Mike's fiction and you read their collaborations, stories with heart is a big part of that. So when she tells me, I think you understand what a story with heart looks like and you can help me pick those out. Well, first of all, it's, it's stroking my ego. (laughs) Second of all, again, it's, I have an obligation to do this. If she's thinking I can help do this, I have that obligation. Right. No, it's, I think I think it's great that you've 
been able to step up to this to help out on that, to, to make this happen with Galaxy's Edge magazine. Any particular plans for Galaxy's Edge that you can share? Uh, I can share some generalities. Right now, Leslie has been, she's been dealing with some health issues, which is reasonably public. She talks about it on Facebook and such. So she is trying right now to keep the responsibilities of the magazine within her recuperation regime, which means right now we are not planning on open slush anytime soon. Right. Right now we are doing invited slush only, and we're talking back and forth on who needs to be invited. Uh, again, we know that writers of future winners are real good candidates because they're already proven new writers, but that's not all we're looking at. We, we have a list of invitations going out, and there will be a point where, okay, she's got more energy to spare, and we've used up our invitation list, and we're ready to open up for open slush. We're probably going to throttle this not by a length of time, like some markets will say, okay, we're going to open up for seven days on September 10th. We're probably going to do things like we're going to open up for the first 30 stories that come in on such and such a date. Mm -hmm. because we're, we're trying to manage the queue. Mike used to talk about when he was the fiction editor for a publication, the slush readers for that publication had as a mandate that they had to be able to reject a story every 30 seconds or the slush pile would bury them. Wow. And so they had to be able to open it up, look at it, say, the format on this is lousy, the spelling is awful, the typing is bad, Nothing here catches my attention on the first page, and in 30 seconds, I stick it in the rejection envelope. And so the stories that could get past that 30-second screen would go on to the next editor. Right. So, so we can't afford that level of chaos. That was a completely open slush there in a high-paying market that they were getting. I mean, they had a half-dozen slush readers, and to keep up with it, that half-dozen if, if every one of them has to reject a story in 60 seconds, that means there are six stories a minute coming into their slush pile. They couldn't possibly keep up with that if they paid too long attention to any one story. We couldn't keep up with that at all. There's only the two of us. So we're going to keep the slush pile small when it opens. Right. But we are going to have open slush once we get through some invitation stories. And I think you will start to see, inevitably, a little bit of Leslie's imprint on the magazine as opposed to Mike's, because every editor puts their imprint on the magazine. But again, the stories they collaborated on had so much in common that I think you're going to see something that looks a lot like maybe a modernized version of Mike's story. Since Leslie and I are a, another generation after Mike, I think you might see some modernizing but we're hoping we have the same level of excellence and the same level of heart. Well, I have no doubt about the heart. And, uh, I mean, just from what I've read, like I said, and today I'm Carrie, the response that, you know, public have had to your, to your writing and your, you know, there's more coming out. Excellent is growing at a, at a parabolic rate there going up. So that's good, you know, but I, I absolutely have no doubt about, you know, your guys' heart, is, it doesn't get any bigger. So that's, that's, I think, a really good sign for the future of Galaxy's Edge. So what 
um, for someone who's not familiar with you, you know, there's various choices, the, the short fiction and the long fiction. What would you recommend for someone to discover Martin Shoemaker? Well, for short fiction, I'm going to say the best two things to read are Today I Am Paul and Unrefined. Uh, because Today I Am Paul is actually not typical for me in terms of it's not particularly hard science fiction. But in terms of how I like to approach characters, I don't think it gets better than that. Right. Unrefined, I, I, I don't think I was any slouch in the characters in that one either. I think I really tried to capture their emotions and everything. But I really tried to make the reader feel like they are floating in free fall in a space station in Jupiter orbit. I really tried to create a world that would make the reader believe it. And that's the sort of things that are, are, I hope is coming across in all of my, well, not all, but most of my fiction. Um, I once told David sort of as a joke that I wanted to be the best writer of free fall scenes in all of science fiction. <laughs> and, and David just smiled because he said, if you're serious about that, you will be. He said when he started writing his first book, he set himself a goal of he wanted to write the best fight scenes in fantasy. And by setting himself that goal and keeping that in mind, he wrote the great fight scenes. And I think there's some truth to that. By giving yourself a priority, it matters. When I was writing Unrefined, and, and it's since been through some editing passes when it's been reprinted in some places, yeah. and people have tried to change some things, and I'm like, no, you can't change that. First of all, because it's already been published, but also because I chose that wording and that metaphor because these characters are in free fall. There is no fixed position. If they wave their hands too violently, air currents are going to move them. I deliberately chose all the metaphors and all the descriptions and the settings and the, the positionings and everything to try to convey this idea of they are not in fixed space. If they want to hold still, they must grab something. Mm -hmm. If they want to go someplace, they must push off from something and so on. And, and I think he had a point there. Simply by giving yourself a goal, it affects the words you come up with. Well, that makes sense. That makes good sense. So then, so for short fiction, Unrefined, and today I am Paul, and for novels? Well, there's only two to choose from right now, and I... I pretty much love them both, so it's sort of a matter of what they're looking for. Today I Am Carrie, I love it. It's a wonderful story. It absolutely tears my heart out every time I read it. It is not an action-adventure story by any means. Right. But the reader's taste is that they want to see action and adventure and, and such. That won't be the story for them. There are exactly two gunshots in the entire book. And I, I can point to where they happen and point to the effect they have. I won't say that there's not action, but it's much more drama. It's character interaction more than action. If you're looking for action or if you're looking for more conflict in general, then The Last Dance, which is my second novel, even though it's the first one I wrote, The Last Dance is the one to go with. Um, it still isn't rollicking space battles. I, I'll write those someday. But it's, it's high tension, high drama, conflict in space set against the backdrop of a, um, of a 
potential court martial and the investigator who's trying to find out what really happened to decide whether or not to press charges. And so there are battle scenes, there are fight scenes, there are plenty of conflicts and arguments and debates and so on. So to some extent, if you're looking for a family drama, you want Carrie. If you're looking for more of a space drama with lots of conflict, you want The Last Dance. And The Last Dance has really taken off on Amazon because the publisher has done such a good job of making people aware of it. Um, for the month of October of last year, it was the number one science fiction ebook on all of Amazon. And outside of the science fiction genre, I don't have precise numbers because it, it varied across the month, but it never dropped below number 28 for all ebooks on Amazon in October last year. Wow, that's impressive. That's so very it, impressive. It's got a lot of fans who, who recommend that one. Okay, so I'm going to put that at the top of the list. All right. So do you have another project that's happening that's following this, or is that you've got the next book that's coming out, you said? The, the sequel to The Last Dance is coming out in October. That's the last campaign. All right. Uh, some of the same characters, and basically it, it's the aftermath of what happened at the end of The Last Dance and how, how two of the characters and a few others are coping with that. Um, What's the name of that title? I, the Last Campaign. Okay, good. Because this is this podcast is going to hit probably the end of this month, so we're going to have it'll give us one month advance to be able to get people through the last dance. So they can get ready for the last campaign. Cool. That works. And, and then I am working on a hard science fiction epic, and, and I mean. An epic on the scope of, of Lucifer's Hammer or a James Mishner novel, something of that scope. I'm working on that, and hopefully, I'm about 40,000 words in, and my vision is that it's probably about 250,000. Um, is the so main protagonist named Jerry? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, there, it's, it's, because it's epic, there's a, it's not a single protagonist. It's definitely multiple protagonists across different parts of a giant effort, essentially one man's vision to get humanity to a real space station, a real space, space-faring society, and all the different people who are involved in that mission either trying to help it or thwart it. Help it or thwart it or forward it? Thwart it. Wow. That some people think it's a bad idea or think that he's going about it wrong. But So it's, it's going to be very much following multiple different storylines across a 20-year span. Right. So that one's, that was ambitious, especially only for my fourth novel, but I can see where to take it, and David Farland, our, our coordinating judge for Writers of the Future, has looked at my work and said, you can do this. You, you know what you're doing. Just do it. Don't doubt it. Just do it. So I'm feeling fairly good about that one, and I dictated... 40,000 words on it in June and then got sidetracked and almost sort of like bringing my life around full circle. Mm -hmm. For a lot of years, I've been thinking about how you can draw pictorial models of stories. And I've been feeling like there's a book there. There really is a book there. And I, all of a sudden in late June, just started dictating and dictating and dictating. And I've got 50,000 plus words dictated on a book on story models 
basically ready to go, except I have to draw all the pictures to go with it. But ironically, bringing things full circle, an awful lot of the last half of the book is using the UML that I use to design software to design stories. Wow. That the same concepts apply, that the software is about who wants to do something and how are they going to do it and what obstacles do they face and what they have to overcome to do it, which is exactly the same thing as the structure of a story. Right. Well, that's great. That's, that's really good. I'm definitely interested to see how that pans out. So, in general, what advice do you have for the aspiring writer? Well, the one is don't be stupid like me and give up easily. Because I've been, quote-unquote, submitting stories since I was 13. Mm-hmm. And every time I got a rejection, I'd give up for two or three or four years or five or ten or whatever. And amazingly enough, when I finally decided to stop giving up, I started selling. So I was essentially, my, my biggest obstacle was myself. So don't be stupid like me. Don't <laughs> give up the rejection because every successful author has got dozens to hundreds or more rejections. Um, the writers of future judges like to get together and compare their rejection piles. Uh, Kevin Anderson, I think, is still the all-time winner among the judges for how many rejections he had before his first sale. Yeah. And, but I didn't know that when I was young. I assumed a rejection meant you can't do this as opposed to you didn't do it yet, keep trying. Mm-hmm. And so that is one really big piece of advice I have for new writers, especially younger writers, because they've got a lot more opportunity to keep trying. They've got a lot more to learn. Um, when you're young, you've still got to really build up your, your muscles by doing more reading and more writing and, and just keep basically practicing until you get good. So I want them to get that. And that's, again, one more benefit of the contest is once you're tied into the contest, especially on the forum and talking to other, other participants, contestants, and winners, everybody's encouraging you to now say, okay, so four times a year you ought to be turning out a story. Yeah. Four times a year you ought to be turning out a publishable story that you're really willing to submit. And that helps get people into a rhythm. Now, once you get to the actual workshop, they're going to say, a quarter? You need a whole quarter? To... No, no. You need 24 hours to write a story, and they give us the exercise to do that. And that was an eye-opener. Mm-hmm. That really, once you get some comfort with the concept, you ought to be able to put together a good, solid short story, maybe not in 24 hours, but it shouldn't, shouldn't certainly be 24 weeks or 24 months. It might be 24 days, but honestly, I feel like if you're taking that long, you're obsessing. You need to move on to the next story. Yeah. And my 24-hour story was eventually in the um, Year's Best Military and Adventure Science Fiction Volume 4. So apparently, I wrote pretty well in 24 hours once they convinced me to just let it happen. The beauty of the exercise is they're telling you, you don't have to try to make this good. You just have to make this done in 24 hours in a way that's liberating. Mm-hmm. If I'm not trying to make it perfect, then I can make it what it really needs to be. And it's interesting how so many people's 24-hour stories have sold. And mm-hmm. that you've got Dean Wesley Smith that just, he never rewrites. He just writes it and sends it off. 
And yep. Elwin Hubbard was the same way. They, you know, he'd write his stories. I mean, he was his composition speed was a little over ninety words a minute, and he was pumping out hundred thousand words a month. So you can do it. And he was selling. That was, you know, I mean, it was at a time period where um, it was very difficult to make a living with uh, between World War One and World War Two. With the um, depression happening, you had to be good or you starved, and that's that's how it went down. And one of the things I've learned from that that he knew certainly is it becomes easier because if you're writing the story in a day, you can keep the whole story in your head. Yeah. If you're taking 12 months to write a short story, first of all, you're, you're doing it wrong. But second of all, you can't keep that whole thing in your head for 12 months. But when I wrote Today I Am Paul, it literally was a one-hour story. I could keep that whole story in my head for one hour. Mm-hmm. So making it coherent is easier because you're writing faster. That makes perfect sense. It really does. So um, I think that's amazing advice for the aspiring writer. So if someone wants to be able to find out more about you, like you've got this amazingly um, unique writing style, which we'll probably go into as a, as a, a separate interview with your book on uh, uh, being a dictator <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that you wrote with Kevin. I think that's a, its own subject that, that I don't want to water this one down with, but that's some fantastic the ability to, to dictate your stories that you do with Kevin as well. So we will schedule that for a separate interview to, to discuss that, if that's okay with you. That'd be great. But now on, how can somebody contact you? What's the best way? What do you recommend on how somebody can reach you? Um, best way is my website, shoemaker.space. Um, although right now my hosting site has got some sort of problems on it, so I can't do updates on it. Mm-hmm. But I still get email if they contact me there. Or I'm, I'm pretty ubiquitous on Facebook, Martin L. Shoemaker. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel sad for the other Martin Shoemakers out there now because I have become so ubiquitous in so many other fields that I have to assume people who go searching for them find me for about a page and a half of web listings before they find them. Well, that congratulations then to you. It, that, that, yeah. is, that doesn't happen by chance. That's by a lot of successes that makes that happen. And if somebody wants to buy your books, what's the, where do you recommend they go? Just Amazon or to Barnes & Noble, or where should they go to find your books? Uh, certainly, if they want The Last Dance and The Last Campaign, Amazon is the best place to go for those because they are uh, from 47 North, which is Amazon's science fiction imprint. Uh-huh. And you can get 47 North books from Barnes & Noble, but you generally have to special order them. Okay. There's, there's a little corporate rivalry going on there, so they're less likely to, to stock a 47 North title unless it's really a big bestseller. Sure. So if, if you want the last dance and the last campaign, that would be something you'd say you have to go to Amazon for. Uh, as far as today I am Carrie, Barnes & Noble has been so kind to me. I want to say 13 different book signings I had for that book inside of six months last year. Barnes and Noble, every Barnes and Noble that was anywhere within driving distance of me happily gave me either my own signing or put me up on a local author group signing. So I, I, I share the love there that Barnes and Noble is a great place to get that one. You can get it, of course, Amazon and all the other places. But Barnes and Noble really treated that book right, so I want to treat them right. 
Good. Well, that makes total sense to me. So anything else I didn't ask you? We've talked about a lot of things. Anything else before we wrap up? Um, nothing I could think about me. Um, just my, my recommendation that if you're a new writer of fantasy and science fiction, you really need to be participating in this contest because I have seen it change lives. It's still up to you. I mean, I, at one point, the number I heard was one out of three writers, winners, went on to have anything to speak of in terms of a writing career, mm-hmm. which, which sounds pretty imposing because that means two out of three don't. But then I go and think, what other market out there has a 33% success rate in picking long-term winners? I can't think of a one. So many of the other markets out there, not the bad markets, I love them, love to read them, love to submit to them, love to get printed by them, but I can't think of one of them where if you get published there as a new writer, you've got a one in three chance of having a career coming out of it. Whereas with Writers of the Future, if you make it here, you've got a shot. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Thank you very much. That's, we endeavor to make that a reality. Well, thank you very much, uh, Martin, and thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. And once again, thank you very much, Martin. Thank you. 